The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Laura Militello from Applied Decision Science. And I'm Brian Moon from Perigean Technologies. Today we welcome Lee Beach. Lee is the McClellan Centennial Emeritus Professor of Management at the Eller College of Business at the University of Arizona. He was a professor of public administration and of psychology, teaching graduate and executive courses on managerial decision-making and organizational change. Lee has served on the editorial board for several well-known journals, including Organizational Behavior and Human Decision-Making, the Journal of Behavioral Decision-Making, and the Journal of Forecasting. He attended the first meeting on naturalistic decision-making in 1989 and is known for his work on the theory of mind, the theory of narrative thought, and image theory. He has authored many influential books and articles and is also a professional artist. So welcome, Lee. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Great. So I wanted to go back to the very beginning and ask if you can remember the very first paper you ever published, and tell us a little bit about that. Well, I don't remember the paper very clearly. What I remember is the event itself. Uh, I was a first semester graduate student at the University of Colorado, and uh, I was actually working as a short order cook to support myself. And Michael Wertheimer, uh, whose father was Max Wertheimer of Gestalt psychology fame, um, hired me to do the uh, analysis of a data set that he'd already collected in an area called person perception, which was something, if I recall, about how people perceived other people, right? And anyway, I did that, that data analysis, which I did it on a Marchant calculator because computers didn't exist then. That tells you how very, very old I am. <laughs> and... Uh, and when so I did a matrix of something like 70 variables by 70 variables. I took forever. And when it was all done, Mike said, well, would you write up a preliminary uh, results and maybe a little bit of a paper? And I did. He modified it. He sent it off to some journal and I was completely out of the loop. And one day he walked in, he handed me a reprint and he had made me first author, which is the most astonishing thing you could do, I think, for a brand new graduate student. And from Mike, things like that and what happened subsequently, I learned how to be a good mentor and a good professor, and that stood me in good stead, primarily because most of my very long-term friends, and by long-term, I mean as much as 60 years, have uh, been graduate students. Uh, people who got their degree with me. So we seem to have got along pretty well. That's a long-winded yeah. answer for a very simple question. <laughs> it's a great story. It's a great story. I love hearing stories of how people got started and kind of the things that stick with them. And uh, so, so that, you know, that story is, is, is a lot about um, the kind of encouragement and support you were getting, um, which is, is really nice that, that that has stayed with you. Um, so I, I, I'm, I know that some of your early writing, 
about image theory has been very influential in the NDM community. It's, it's definitely influenced me and, and beyond that, I'm sure beyond the NDM community, but those are the folks I know. And I wondered, um, has your thinking about decision-making evolved since you did some of that foundational work? Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) One of the nice things about being retired is you get time to think, which you don't when you're working. Right. And uh, so after I retired, I was looking at image theory and I thought, I really don't like this theory. It is sort of simple minded and yet it isn't and it lacks depth. And so I started thinking about it a lot more. And actually, it led to the work I've been doing recently on narrative thought. The problem with the concept of an image is that nobody ever knew quite what it was. Um, Was it visual? Was it auditory? Was it, well, it was all those things, really. But, and the other part was, if you looked it up and Googled it, you would end up getting things on optics, and that wasn't working very well. So anyway, I sat down and I tried to rewrite image theory using not the concept of image as a central uh, metaphor, if you will, but using narrative for it. And for the last mm, 15 to 20 years, I've been working on that. And my new work is really in its own way a reworking of the image theory in, I think, uh, greater depth and uh, conceptual breadth. And that's the theory of narrative thought. So can you uh, just, uh, for maybe some of the listeners who aren't as familiar, tell us a little bit more about about your thinking on, on, on narrative thought. Okay. <clears throat> I think this is really compatible, by the way, with naturalistic decision-making. In fact, I wrote a paper, which I can't seem to get published anywhere, in which I said naturalistic decision theories, and, uh, you know, the whole sort of eclectic, basket full of things that passes those theories uh, have in common that they all assume that people think about things, they put a problem in situ in terms of how did we get here, what's wrong, and what needs to be done next, and what will happen if we don't do it, as well as it's a control theory. It, it says things aren't right, here's how they should be, what do I have to do, to bring those two things into alignment. And that's the basic notion of control theory. So the notion of narrative is that I I posit that the brain arranges events uh, on a a spectrum, a time continuum, uh, which is flexible. It doesn't have a very good unit to it. And that the things relating those events is causality. So if you get a causal temporal arrangement of events, it becomes a narrative. It's a story of what happened, how we got here, where the how is the causality. But the important thing that it has is it tells you what might happen next. And I think in terms of evolution, that's why this makes sense. Because forever, people have been walking around trying to anticipate what's going to happen next and whether that's going to be dangerous. So the basic notion of the theory is that we put things in story form because they help us anticipate the future, and that allows us to um, evaluate whether that future is going to be dangerous or not and take action 
before the future gets here, becomes the present, and then very quickly becomes the past. Now, you layer on top of that language, which is, as has been pointed out for many, many years, a way of binding time. Language allows us to talk about the past in the present and the future in the present. And it allows you to have a theory of rather considerable depth and a theory that I think is a better way of thinking of cognition than the metaphor of the computer, which is the dominant one now of information, um, information processing, which I think is a rather mechanistic and probably in the long run, not awfully profitable. That's the end of that little story. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so there's a lot of interesting things in there. I think a, a lot of folks in the NDM community have reacted against that kind of information processing computer model. Um, and I also think this kind of natural story building that people do um, is a common theme in a lot of the NDM work. Um, I think that your work, one of the things that makes it really stand out is, is the kind of deep thinking and, and theory behind it and the ability to kind of link that theory to phenomenon that you can observe in the world. Um, and so that, that, that's part of your work that I have really admired. Well, let me just say one thing here that that's what's happening right now is I'm working on a, a paper with a colleague, Jim Wise, who incidentally was my very first PhD student. Um, and Jim has uh, always been part of uh, the architecture school and design community and so forth. And we got thinking about all the heuristics and biases stuff that seems to dominate everything. And it turns out that heuristics and most of the biases are natural, um, I don't know what you call it, the operating characteristics of narrative thinking. And that they, they, they are a reasonable thing to happen if you think narratively and causatively, which, of course, Kahneman pointed that out a long time ago, that, that, that when we think causatively, we don't think uh, statistically. But it's always struck me as amazing. You know, in man is an intuitive statistician, that ancient, ancient paper that seems to be what, I don't know, some foundational thing. Anyway, uh, we never actually claimed that people were operated as statisticians. We said it was a metaphor for thinking about how people thought about uncertainty and that the question was, how closely did that conform to probability theory? Now, there is a fundamental flaw because if people could think easily about probability and uncertainty in the way that probability theory uh, says, they would never have to invent probability theory. The very <laughs> existence of a tool tells you that there's some aspect of human behavior that needs support. So that whole line of research has always struck me as infinitely dumb. <laughs> that's that's a, uh, such a great insight. Um, I have never thought about it that way. But yeah, that completely makes sense. Why The, the whole reason people came up with probability theory is because People weren't doing that naturally. Yeah. So, Lee, uh, just to switch gears for a minute to you, um, tell us something about you that the audience probably does not know. I'm an artist. Let's hear about that. Um, I, I, well, when I started to college, um, I was in arts. And my art professor took me aside 
And I, I started college when I was 16. And my first class in, uh, in art, he took me aside and he said, well, you may have talent, but you have absolutely nothing to say. Now, I'm not sure what that means when you say it to a 16-year-old. But anyway, I found that rather discouraging. So as second best, I became a psychologist. And that worked pretty well. And then a few years before I retired, I started really painting seriously again. And when I retired, some friends and I opened an art gallery. And we worked at that for a few years. And then we decided that was far more work than we could possibly do. That was awful. Because we had to have a new show every month to keep people coming in with fresh stuff. And that's just, that kills you to produce that much art. So um, I stopped doing that, but I still paint. I just had a show at a local museum. Um, and that's what I do now. And when I'm, when I'm waiting for the paint to dry, I come in and work on uh, narrative theory. So what about uh, your painting? Uh, what, what has your painting taught you about NDM and decision-making and how people think, if anything? <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure I can answer that because something very strange happens when you paint. You... And this, I hate this kind of talk when artists do it. I, I just makes me furious, but it's true. You become part of the painting and everything else ceases to exist. And you really are in there and you aren't, it isn't like you're making decisions. It's like the painting's telling you what to do. And I wish I hadn't said that publicly <laughs> because I would deny ever having said that in public. But there you are. <laughs> So you don't make decisions when you paint. Let's push on that a bit further. Um, well, the decisions seem to flow as part of the task. And actually, I don't know why I find that embarrassing because it, in any other thing, I think that's quite true. You know, a painting is a story. And it's a static story, but it's a story. And I paint landscapes. So landscapes are the result of a history and they are what they are, and it isn't quite clear what the future will be, but nonetheless, it's a story. And so what you, when you're painting, what you're doing is letting that story unfold. And that, that really is what happens, particularly for some reason, if you paint water, because water is flowing and you've got to make it look like it's flowing. And that means you have to think about it as flowing. Mm. <laughs> oh dear, this is going to be so embarrassing. <laughs> But you start from a blank canvas and something emerges over time. Are there not little decisions you make along the way about where things go and what should be put there and how those two things might interact and those kinds of decisions? Well, some people may, but for me, it just happens. Hmm. And then it's three hours later and my wife is saying, are you going to come eat dinner or not? <laughs> that sounds like a decision. <laughs> yeah, there's the decision. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Interesting. Okay, so I'm going to I'm gonna switch gears a little bit. Um, and I wanted to ask about your most recent book, The Structure of Conscious Experience. Um, will you tell us a little bit about the ideas you explore there? Well, that's what I was just talking about a few moments ago, is the idea that that the brain structures experience. And I and the reason I put conscious in is because I, I spend a lot of time saying I don't think there's a thing 
the unconscious, like in a Freudian sense. But there are things that do not become part of recorded experience, ancillary things. Um, that, that are opaque to us. But the parts of, the, of our experience that are not opaque uh, are what get organized in this narrative form. And then that leads to okay. the rest of what I so was talking what, about. So one thing that makes me think ago. about a, a lot of the uh, NDM methods are focused on helping people articulate tacit aspects of performance. Um, and then there are some folks who think by definition, you cannot articulate tacit things. Um, what, what do you, where do you stand on that? What is your thinking there? Oh dear. Well, okay, this gets a little complicated because in my view, there's a narrative which essentially is what we're thinking about when we think about our intuitive knowledge. That's there, but you don't have as clear access to it as you'd like to think you do. And there are things recorded there that don't come up when you start to talk, because if you layer language on top of this, it turns out that in order to communicate about all that really rich experience you've got recorded as a, as a what I call the prime narrative, you really have to simplify a lot. And that simplification uh, version of it is used for two things. One is used for communicating with other people, but the other is communicating with yourself. Thinking is communicating with yourself about the contents of the prime narrative. Now, uh, that means that there are details left behind, and it's they, they are hard to access. Uh, it's hard not, well, you have the same sort of problem when you think about scenario planning. Uh, the future that your that your prime narrative is telling you about is your future. That's you believe it. The better the story is that predicts that future, the more you believe it. And then somebody comes to you and says, "Well, now we need to sit down and, as a group, come up with alternative scenarios about the future." And that is hard because those scenarios have to be congruent with your present view of things and how you think things got this way. By the same token, there are things that are part of the problem-solving space, if you will, that aren't represented in your stories about them, except at that very low level. So when you talk about trying to get tacit knowledge, what you're trying to do is get people to have a better contact with that rock level, basic bedrock, that's the word I was going for, bedrock level knowledge that they have about what's going on, how it came to be this way, and what its implications are for the future. So you were saying, uh, we are trying to get help people uh, get to that bedrock knowledge, that stuff that's really hard to articulate, but that's really about um, yeah. kind of what they sensed and how, how they made sense of an experience. That's sort of... Right. One of the things, let me, let me just say this. One of the things that I learned very early on when I was trying to do decision uh, aiding, and we did a lot of that, and, I, and Larry Phillips was doing it in England and Cam Peterson was doing it in Washington and everybody was doing it for a while. And that is, if the analysis leads to a decision that is counterintuitive, the client doesn't want 
to play. Intuition, it seems to me, unless you intimidate in some way or another, really rules the roost. And it's trying to get to that to that intuition, that lower level of stuff that isn't encoded in words very, very thoroughly or very easily. That is what you're talking about. And that helps people clarify their thinking. Uh, but the thinking is done really at a verbal level. And when I say that, I mean also, in addition to verbal, there are, you know, there are visual images and and kinesthetic images and all that. That's all part of thinking. So I wanted to just pull one thread there. You've mentioned in some of your consulting work, sometimes um, people are not open because they have an intuition, because what you're suggesting is, ca- suggesting is counter to their intuition. And I'm wondering how, how do you uh, manage those kinds of situations? Well, when I was doing this commercially, you know, uh, as a consultant, uh, we listened carefully to their intuition. And if it was wrong, we worked on the assumption that it, it may very well be wrong. And if in f- usually these were done in groups, right? So some person's intuition, they would want to use it to trump everybody else. And so you had to, it really came down to more of a negotiation at the end than accepting any one person's view. Now, if it was the CEO and it was counterintuitive to him or her, <laughs> you could be pretty sure it wasn't going to go any further than that. <laughs> but if it were some other, uh, uh, some lower group of people, then you, you had to deal with status, but you had to make sure that nobody had the right to veto just because their intuitions were different. And that had to be agreed on up front, I, I think. And okay. that, that usually So part of it was best. kind of setting the stage for the negotiation, but another part was really listening and helping people articulate their intuitions. So Yeah, and we worked out some pretty elaborate uh, uh, questionnaires to help people think about that kind of stuff. We did a whole series of studies on people making decisions about whether to have another or a first child. And we that ended up being used uh, in clinics, really primarily in Germany, uh, to help married couples who seem to have very different views on that. And they come in and you'd use this questionnaire primarily as a way to get the conversation started. And you often found that the people weren't as far apart in their views as they thought they were when they came in. It's just that the things that they differed on, they differed on so much. And often those weren't even things that were pertinent to the decision about having a child. It was it was quite amazing. Wow, that's so interesting. So I didn't that almost starts to sound like counseling a little bit. It was. And indeed in Germany it was used. In Germany at that time they had a law that um, they used it for abortion counseling, if I recall. And uh, so you couldn't get an abortion unless you went through this counseling. And uh, Helmut Jungerman made a version of this to use for that counseling. And it was. And we used it also for people trying to decide whether they wanted to have elective surgery. Uh, Lord, I can't even think of all of them. Uh, once one of my graduate students did things uh, on kids deciding whether or not to commit a crime. And we found out one of the reasons that youngsters did it is because they had an older sibling 
who was in jail and they thought they could go be with them in jail. I mean, uh-huh. you find some amazing uh-huh. things when you start doing this as a, as a kind of counseling tool. And what would often happen is I'd be working with a, a clinical psychologist. That's what happened in the birth study. And then I would be the decision part of it and they would be the counseling part of it. And we ended up both of us essentially doing the same work. Wow. That's really fascinating. When you're very old, you've done a lot of things before you die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd, like, I'd like to pull on that yeah. thread earlier. You um, mentioned about sort of talking to oneself. Um, so, so, so I'm pretty familiar with uh, research literature in symbolic interactionism in sociology. Uh, and, and, and there are concepts uh, of the self and how the self is sort of organized. Um, but there's a, a researcher, Lonnie Athens, who has yeah. put forward this idea of, of sort of a self as soliloquy so that we are continuing to sort of uh, manage ourself as this constant soliloquy, meaning not only are we talking to ourselves, but we're talking to sort of our phantom community, those we've had experience with in the past. And, you know, everything from sort of bouncing ideas off of them to looking for solutions about what to do, what's coming next. And so if, if you could sort of uh, talk a bit more about this idea of, of uh, talking to oneself uh, as, a, as an interesting part of thinking. Uh, but also I'm curious to, to know how that uh, aspect of your work has been received. Um, because, you know, talking to ourselves uh, in, a, in a clinical sense um, uh, is not always welcome, but uh, it's, uh, the interactionist would suggest that it's you know, not, not, not just essential, it is basically the existence of the self is in having these soliloquies. So how has that part of your work been received? Well, to say how my work has been received, the, the, the narrative stuff hasn't been received. I don't think very many people have had any contact with it. I've had a, you know, when uh, just a slight detour here, when we published image theory, we could not get in the journals because it wasn't empirical. And all the journals are dedicated to empiricism. There are very few that are open to just ideas for ideas' sake. And so the first publication was in an organizational journal, and that was didn't fit, but it got there. And then I published a book, and it was published in Britain because they were much more open to those kinds of ideas in, in Europe in general. And then that made us legitimate, and then things started to go, well, I'm having the same problem with this. Um, and I've written a number of papers and I've published the books. The books are all, uh, there are three books. Two of them are published in Britain. So it's, it's really hard to get things going. Now to come back to your other thing, what, what you just described as this soliloquy is brilliant because it's exactly right <laughs> from my point of view. I think that's really true. You know, I think that the, that the I our self-identity is indeed constructed, not necessarily through will, but more because we are constantly talking to ourselves about ourselves and interpreting our own behavior. The other thing is I is the only constant thing. We are either the observer or the actor in everything that happens to us. And it's that constancy that is me. And it doesn't mean that there's a, that I have to have a soul or any of those other things to be me. And this is an ancient problem. 
the soul was actually a, a, a attempt to solve that problem. Some feeling of being an entity, uh, something that was separate from everybody else and separate even from your environment in a way. And I think that that's because we are the one constant in our own experience. And then when we get language, we start to construct a story about ourselves. And it's frequently quite inaccurate if you compare it to other people's stories about ourselves. Right. So, so this, this idea of uh, soliloquy and, and the self and the I and the me, I, I think uh, th there's a lot of uh, potential mining there to do in terms of NDM theory and, and how it might connect to some of these ideas uh, in sociology. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very eager to sort of dig into your, uh, to your newer work, um, especially this idea of the narrative, because, uh, yeah, it's got some nice overlaps with some ideas in sociology. Yeah, I think the, the guy that had the most to say about scenarios was Helmut Jungerman. And he and Thuring, you know, quite a few years ago, they said a lot of very interesting things in relation to decision making. So let me let me jump jump back. Um, I guess it was it was just maybe a year or two ago, but we did a special issue in the Journal of Cognitive Engineering and Decision Making on evidence based medicine. And you contributed a very nice essay there. And one of the things that you highlighted was this idea that guidelines that start out as reasonable guidelines, useful guidelines, have this way of morphing into requirements and performance standards, and that often winds up with a negative effect. So now it's a universal rule that doesn't really, isn't really one size fits all, but it's, it's starting to be used in that way. Um, and I wondered, so, so I think this is, you know, something that's being debated quite a bit right now in healthcare, but I wondered if you have seen this play out in other domains as well. You, you wrote about it so eloquently, it made me think this was a, a theme you've seen. Well, I can't say that I've really explored it all that far, but it strikes me that the major example is, the, is mandatory sentencing in, in the justice system. Because the early idea was that you would have guidelines, and then the guidelines ceased to be guidelines and became, this is what you have to do. And if you don't do it, you're going to be punished as a judge, either voted out of office or there will be some sort of censure. Um, it, this happens in education when uh, uh, there is a particular way that teaching has to be done. You don't see it so much at the university level, but you see it at lower levels. It also happens, according to a friend of mine, this uh, Jim Wise, in the design fields where uh, buildings have to meet certain requirements and that uh, you start to have these requirements um, become more and uh, less and less flexible the ways in which you can meet the requirements become narrower and narrower, and pretty soon there's no flexibility left at all. And the result is that you get uh, these kind of wooden answers to problems that are far more complex than is actually covered in the guidelines. And, you know, that's particularly true. Look at, at the mandatory sentencing. It allows for no subtlety. It allows for... I read the guy yesterday, uh, I read somewhere, who is in jail for the rest of his life because he tried to steal a pair of um, 
tree clippers. And he had a bad record before that and so forth. But the guidelines said he had to go to jail for the rest of his life. They figure that it will cost something like $22 million to keep him in jail the rest of his life because he failed to get a $15, $20 pair of clippers. I mean, that kind of insanity arises when you put these rules down and make them rigid. And these fields all, you know, suffer from that, I think. Uh, I might say just incidentally that one of the things that kind of worries me at the moment is as classes go online because of the virus, that they will be more easily um, examined to see whether they're doing what they're supposed to do. And I think that's going to add more rigidity to the system and that I don't think this is good for education in the long run. I find it quite worrisome. Yeah, so I, I I feel like you're highlighting this really important tension. So it's it's valuable, it's useful to have guidelines to learn from things that have worked in the past and worked well, and under what circumstances they work well. But at some point, um, that that can shift into this rigidity. That's a really negative thing. Yeah. Um, well, you know, Paul Falzer, who's the person who wrote the magazine, uh, wrote the article to which I wrote that comment that you're talking about. He did a study that I thought was brilliant because the only one I've ever seen, and that was he looked at the use of these medical protocols uh, at their efficacy, um, depending on the level of professional experience of the people using them. And he found them very valuable for people who were, you know, pretty newcomers to medical practice. But people who'd been around a long time, they, they, they weren't good because they, they limited this person's ability to use their experience to deal with cases that were not typical. And that's, I think, the huge problem with these kinds of guidelines when they become rigid is you can't deal with the atypical. And you and I both know that most of the world is atypical. Right. <laughs> Yeah, socially, it's interesting how this happens, too, because with, with the federal sentencing guidelines in particular, uh, there aren't many judges who like them. Uh, and, and I used to work, actually, in sentencing uh, in, in criminal cases, and I was sort of in a cottage industry of, of now consultants who are consulting clients about how to, how to uh, go about advocating in the context of the sentencing oh. guidelines. And so uh, these guidelines come along as a way to, uh, you know, ideally to press for equity. Uh, and yet you get all these other uh, social activities that sort of spring from them and then just reinforce the rigidity like you're talking about. Um, and people's careers start to be based on these sorts of things. And um, and it gets to be kind of a vicious cycle where the original idea of, of being helpful does become restrictive. Right. And then you end up with it. Ultimate, it takes a revolution to get rid of these things. Um, and I think we've just seen that with uh, people on the streets, a part of the whole Black Lives Matter and this whole call for the police and all that kind of stuff. A large part of that is there are just too many people who have been given really, really vicious sentences as a result of those guidelines.
Right. So to switch back to you a bit, um, you've mentioned a couple of folks uh, that, that you've mentored and that you've mentored by. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, especially as you've uh, managed to endear these folks to you for, for 60 years of friendship, I'm wondering what kind of advice you give to them when they're just starting out uh, and, and what kinds of effects you've seen in terms of the advice you've given. <laughs> I don't know. They all claim I gave them advice. I have absolutely no recollection of ever having had the audacity to do that. Uh, I don't know. I, I All I ever tried to do was to treat them fairly, and it seemed to be that in graduate school that was unique enough to make me <laughs> seem special in some way. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, you know, I come back to Mike Wertheimer. And he was so good with me because what he effectively said is, I'm going to treat you as a professional and I expect you to behave as one. And that made all the difference in the world. It just, I, I think that I was effectively forced into the proper role by those expectations. And I always expected that of my students is, you know, yeah, we'll have a good time and we'll go out for a beer and all that. But I expect you to be professional in the way you behave. Um, I will say one other thing, though, and that is that a lot of my students have gone into the kinds of into industry, right? And I think that's one kind of profession, and it's a very honorable, and I don't argue with it at all. But I also had students who went into academe, and I told them that there's something more expected of you when you're in academe, and that is that you've got to try to think more broadly. Because you can't just be the person who's publishing yet another paper. God knows there are far too many papers. Um, they're everywhere. I, you, nobody can keep track of them. And I said, what you need to do is give some thought to what the enterprise is. Uh, you know, kind of have some depth to this stuff. And I am as guilty as anybody. Man, I turned those things out for years. I took my first job in academe. I had that first year I published 17 papers. That's immoral. That's absurd. <laughs> Nobody has that much to say. But uh, you know, empiricism has been the 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 name of the game. And somehow people believe that if you do enough empirical studies, truth will emerge. And I'm here to tell you that is false. You've got to have some sort of broader viewpoint gathering it all. And you look back at the early days when Ward Edwards and, uh, well, I won't go through all the names because they're a whole bunch of them, but Ward is a good example. Ward didn't start by looking at Bayes' theorem for any reason other than he wanted to know how people think. That was the, that was the basic idea, and it drove him the rest of his life. Uh, so it wasn't that the method or the publications were the end point. It was the understanding that was the end point. And when we published Man as an Intuitive Statistician, we were suggesting it be a metaphor that we think about how people solve problems. We use the statistics as a way to guide our thinking about their thinking. And then we modify the statistical theory and make it more descriptive of what people are doing, not what they're thinking, because we don't know that, what they're doing. And that's what prospect theory was. Prospect theory actually brought to fruition the thing that Ward Edwards had been talking about some 10 years earlier. And so when I talk to 
when I used to talk to students, what I'd say is try to keep the broader picture in mind because that's what you do when you're an academic. Otherwise, you're just turning out one paper after another. You got a good job and that's all it is, is a job. So you've mentioned a few folks who really influenced you. You mentioned uh, Mike Wertheimer and uh, maybe Ward Edwards. I'm wondering, can you can you tell us uh, about a few other folks who have really uh, inspired your thinking? Well, uh, my Ward, uh, uh, Mike Wertheimer actually wouldn't let me be his PhD student. He said we were too good of friends. And he said, when I have to tell you your dissertation's awful, then you'll hate me, and I don't want that to happen. <laughs> so I went to work with, with Ken uh, Hammond, who was the Brunswickian. I don't know if you know who these people are, but anyway. I and, do, and I did not know you worked with Ken Hammond. Yeah, I did my dissertation with Ken hmm. because I didn't like him anyway, and so if I hated him, it would be perfectly okay. <laughs> we, we, we never liked each other. But, you know, we just didn't get along very well. But that was great because that was exactly how it worked well for me. Um, but Ken was a big influence. And, you know, that Brunswick had talked uh, about man as an intuitive scientist. And so, and others had too, of course. And that's where that whole man as an intuitive statistician idea came from. And then, of course, Ward, uh, who, uh, <laughs> uh, he used to drive me nuts because I could never keep up with him. And um, he had a way of talking only in declarative sentences. And so I told my wife once when Ward was coming to dinner, I said, you're not going to like him because he, he, do, he knows no nuances. And so after he left, I said, what did you think? And she said, you and he talk exactly the same, which <laughs> I thought was pretty awful. <laughs> and then the last, last person is somebody that I don't actually really know, and that's Walter Fisher. Now, Walter Fisher uh, is retired, was in communications, and he wrote uh, the basic theory of uh, communication as narration. And that really laid down the, f the fundamentals from which I drew my work for the study of cognition. So those are, really it's four people, it's Wertheimer, Hammond, Edwards, and Fisher. And then other people, you know, colleagues like Terry, uh, Mitchell and Terry Conley here at the university, uh, just really, really nice people. So I have, I have one last question here. That's kind of just a fun question. I'm wondering if you could instantly become expert at something, what would you choose? Uh, be a better artist. Ah. Wait a second. Are, are, are you saying after all these years of painting that you haven't achieved expertise in art? <laughs> I am still a novice. I mean, I fake it pretty well, but, you know, I, I keep thinking what I told you a while ago about how I, I really don't think through the painting. It just happens. And I keep thinking if I were a real artist, I would have that all planned ahead of time. And I have actually tried to plan paintings ahead of time, and they never work. They're just a disaster. And so I, I go in now, and uh, this is literally true. I go in, I take a, I don't paint on canvas, I paint on board, but I take a board and I draw a line on it. And then I just wait to see what happens. Now, if I were a good artist, that, that line would be there for a reason rather than just be there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
I must. But let me let me push a little harder on that one. But but you do take action, right? So you you decide I'm gonna put another line here, or I'm gonna use these paints or mix these paints mm. together. So so help us understand how, how it just happens. Yeah, see, I think you're using the word decision very very broadly. If you talk about mm. any change in the course of behavior as a decision, you're right. But if you're talking about it as a deliberative, weighting pros and cons and all that kind of stuff, then you're wrong. That isn't what happens when I paint. So you're creatively deciding along the way about what you might do next. And if that doesn't work, maybe taking a different tact or... Or painting over it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, there's a lot of room for error there. Yeah. Or not error. That's well, not I used, right I used to do very I used to do very abstract things and then my sister looked at them once and she said it must be nice to paint that way because you never know if you've made a mistake. <laughs> oh, well, thank you Lee for speaking with us today. This has really been a pleasure. It's been fun. Thank you. And so on that note, thank you for joining us for the NDM podcast. I'm Laura Militello. And I'm Brian Moon. Learn more about naturalistic decision-making and where to follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org.